Hi, this is Toco US Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Eric Flora. Eric has been the APU director and head coach since 2006. He has coached 13 recent Olympians and currently coaches eight of the 23 current members of the 2020-2021 US ski team. So that's pretty impressive. I've known Eric for a long time. He's a very successful coach and um, he's, he's also a longtime friend. Thanks for being here, Eric. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. So I wanted to start out by simply asking you where you grew up and how you got involved in skiing and ski racing. Well, that's a, that, that, I have to dig back a little bit. Um, so I, my, I grew up in, uh, in Oregon. And uh, for the most part, you know, I was in Portland, Oregon, and, and spent a lot of time in, in Bend, Oregon. Um, my, uh, I grew up in a family that skied. My mom is Norwegian. And my dad uh, is, grew up in California. He's, he was a baseball player. And so growing up, our family would go up on the weekends and ski. And, and um, it kind of started my, my interest in the sport. Cool. And you come from a ski family, not just your parents, but your, um, Lars also was uh, quite a speedy skier for a while. Right. Yeah. So I have, I have um, two brothers, Lars and Bjorn. Bjorn and uh, I'm the oldest of the three. And so uh, Lars is the youngest. And so Lars, um, of course, you know, several, several time Olympian. And um, my brother Bjorn uh, kind of spent more of his time in the backcountry, but also skied um, NCAA uh, division cross-country skiing. And, and so growing up, that's what we did. We, you know, on the weekends, we go up and ski as a family and, and spend a lot of time in the ski, ski scene and community. Yeah. Um. Eric, you yourself were quite a fast athlete for, for many years there. And I believe, is it, was it a back injury that ended your career or did you just want to get into coaching? Was it a back injury? <laughs> uh, probably a little, a little bit of each, but um, yeah, I, I, you know, I had every intention of, of being a, a high level skier and um, through, through my career, I, I, um, I, I kind of ran into, well, at first I ran into a virus and, and that kind of curbed my skiing for a little bit. And uh, I spent, you know, the better part of the year kind of getting my feet back on the ground. And right as they got back on the ground and I started to train, I was in a car accident. And uh, it was at the, one of the opening um, ski camps of the season up at Hatcher Pass. And, uh, and that, that just sent my personal career sideways. And um, probably looking back on it, it was probably the best thing that could have ever happened for my coaching. Yeah. Well, the last race I can remember you doing, I'm sure you've done something since then, but was the, I believe it was the pursuit at nationals at Soldier Hall with some crazy weather. And I believe you ended up in third. Is that correct? Uh, that, that sounds right. Yeah. And, and at that point, you were already a family man with, did you have two kids at that point? Um, I certainly, I, I think I certainly had one and maybe one on the way. Um, that would have been, yep, I had two, yep, you're right. I had two kids and uh, I was, I was, um, so I had, I had an experience with this car accident where, you know, I had I kind of left on, left my career on the terms of um, the car accident. And uh, I spent a few years doing some other work and kind of got involved with coaching uh, with Gold 2002 and, and Jim Galanis and, um, you know, start coaching a little more and being more active. And I found myself in a place where I found my way around some of these setbacks with a car accident. 
And so I, I made a second run at skiing and then that would have been it. I, uh, yeah. you know, I, I had a, I had a friend that, um, won a gold medal in, in the Olympics in 2002. And it kind of started this inspiration that, you know, I, I want to put my feet back on, you know, race skis again. And, um, where you saw me, that was kind of the end. I, I had kind of a year and a half timeline where I, I set out and I gave myself a year and a half to ski race again. And, uh, so that was, that was the end of that year and a half. Well, I remember telling you after that race that I thought you were almost certainly the fastest American skier with kids. Okay. Conversation. <laughs> yeah, I, I I remember this. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. But I yeah. I mean, you were moving right along, and that's pretty impressive for you know not only do you have kids, but I know that they're you spend a lot of time with them, and you take your role as a father and a husband very seriously, and and uh, that's that was really cool. I that was impressive to see someone excel like that who devotes so much time to his family as well. So I was really impressed by that. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So you all, you kind of outlined that towards the end of your athletic career, you were more or less pushed by circumstance or happenstance into coaching. Mm -hmm. You kind of saw it coming then and you dipped your foot in and out a little bit, but for the most part, there were a few years there where you know that was where your future lied. Is that correct? Yeah, um, that's a good question. You know, as is, um, you know, growing up, I, I always, I always really enjoyed being around skiing, and and um, even you know, as is, is um, kind of my junior years, I, I was interested in the coaching field, and and I, I was fortunate to be around some really you know charismatic people growing up that were coaches, and and kind of inspired this idea. Towards the end of my ski career, I I, I probably wanted anything else than skiing to be in my life, um, especially around that car accident time. And so, um, I, I was, I was fortunate. I, I did, I kind of dabbled in a little bit of ski coaching after the accident. And I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to do some part-time coaching and realize that, um, you know, all those years spent training and, and learning about skiing, they could be passed forward. And, and that was a really rewarding experience. And so, um, I kind of, you know, full-time athlete, then I, I did some other stuff for a few years and got into some coaching and then, uh, then both feet in the water after that with coaching. This is neither here nor there. I wasn't part of my, what I was planning on asking you, but it seems like APU has got a bit of a history with super fast coach slash athletes with Holly Brooks and Mark Strabel and Peter Kling and yourself. And um, there's another fast guy that I'm all of a sudden blanking on, but you've, you've had, you've had quite a history of that with APU, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of, it's one of the, it's one of the benefits, um, I guess, one of the perks that comes along with coaching. Um, and, and actually one of our, one of our kind of coach development strategy uh, to a certain degree, it's a joke, but that, you know, when you come in, you start coaching lots of sessions, you get, you know, you coach juniors and masters and um, get some work with the elite team as well. So um, you get, you just get, totally thrown into coaching, which also means that you have to be out training a lot. And, and kind of the difference when you're training, you know, you get, you're the, you make the decision when to train, but when you're on, when you're scheduled to coach, you know, three sessions a day, you know, you have to be out there no matter what. And so um, I think one of the, one of those side perks is that just figuring out how to live in that life of three sessions a day. If someone can go through that, all of a sudden you see their performance come up and you're right. Um, you know, Holly Brooks was one of those. And um you know, really fun to watch, watch her kind of go through that. But there's a, there's a whole list full of people, the ones you mentioned, also Dylan Watts and, and with uh, Norwegian Frodo Lillefjell. 
yeah. that kind of jumped through that. And, and I think it's, I think, you know, like looking back, like kind of my perspective, you know, we just had a, you know, we have a couple of new coaches that just came on board this year is, you know, when, if you have the perspective um, of skiing as an athlete, then, then when you start coaching, if you, if you just get a lot of coaching, those, what you learn in those years of just spending a lot of time out there interacting with the different age groups are, are invaluable. And so, yeah, we do have a running joke in the club that, you know, when you start out, you know, after you retire, you actually get faster in a few years. Um, but yeah, it's, it's mainly just, it's a good joke too. Yeah. No. Well, in some cases it's more or less held true, you know, a couple. Yeah. So um, you have coached Keegan Randall, Holly Brooks, Eric Bjornsson, David Norris, Sadie Bjornsson, Rosie Brennan, Rosie Frankowski, Rosie Frankowski, Tyler Cornfield, Reese and Logan Hanneman, Jessica Yaden, James Southam, Scott Patterson. It's 13 recent Olympians, all of whom are recent Olympians. In addition, um, as in addition, for example, other current U.S. ski team members, Hunter Wonders, Hannah Halverson, Haley Swerbel, Luke Yeager. Clearly, this is an extremely successful program with many top athletes and up-and-coming athletes on your roster. Um, I know this isn't all you. I know you've got some great people that work that you work with, but I wanted to start out with, if you wouldn't mind, just telling what makes the APU program so successful. Um, I think that APU offers a lot of opportunity and conditions that are unique to the U.S. So if you wouldn't mind, describe the APU pro program, the opportunities that it provides, and what is unique and attractive about it. Okay. Well, thanks. Yeah, the, um, I think that the first part, and, I, and you hit this really well, is there's a lot of people involved in, in making this success. Um, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, one, one of that, one part of that equation. And, and so, um, you know, I, I think to describe what we do is, is we are, you know, a club-based system. And we, you know, I, I think that the best thing we're able to do is we're able to provide a place where people can train and, and have somewhat of a normal life existence. Um, you know, so, you know, coming in as a younger skier, as a junior, we have, you know, a junior club. And then as you get to that part where, you know, you want to make that next step um, towards international or, or World Cup racing, um, we have a, a system where you can come in and get the support you need you know, coaching and a, a good team environment, but also the flexibility to train on the, the ways that you need to train. And, and maybe that includes, it can be different for everybody. Maybe you're a person that, um, you know, needs to, is in a place where, you know, you focus on training a lot, and, um, or maybe you're in a place where you need, you know, it helps to take a class or, or work or, or um, and, and you're based out of Anchorage. And so there's a lot of opportunity to kind of blend, you know, a professional ski life with also a normal life as well. And I've seen that, not to try to come up with all the examples at the same time, but for sure, mm -hmm. um, David Norris and Scott Patterson and Rosie Frankowski have, have got careers that they're balancing with skiing. And Sadie Bjornsson's gone on to, to high levels of education. I mean, your athletes aren't just superb skiers, but they've clearly achieved a balance where they can pursue both a career and ski racing and be highly successful in both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I think in the beginning of my, my, you know, going from an athlete to being a young coach, I was under the impression to be a, a great skier. It, it had to look a certain way. And um, in that way was, you know, like eat, eat, sleep and drink skiing 24 hours a day. And, and um, certainly, you know, you have to have, you know, a lot of focus and you have to have your, 
your lifestyle makes sense, you know, to your goals. And so if your goal is to be, you know, in the world cup or medal in the world cup, you know, you have to get, you know, enough training. And so that determines a lot, but, but also there's room for, you know, depending on how the person's wired, there's room for, for other things. And it is, it, it's incredible. You know, several of those athletes you named um, have gone on to complete their master's um, and, you know, gone on in further education. We have several engineers in the team. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and, uh, and so it's, it's really, really impressive. And I, but I, I think what makes it work is that, you know, because the training environment's simple and commute times are small, you know, get up in the morning, do your training, come home, you know, get what you need, do your, you know, fuel and rest, um, spend some time in the afternoon or the evenings on, on your other projects. Um, and then again, depending on how you're wired, some people that, that is exactly what they need. And then also, um, you know, there's the opportunity to, you know, kind of, kind of go the direction of, you know, focusing on, on you know, from a different, different direction too. For sure. Yeah. So Eric, I think you've got a very unique coaching style. Obviously it's been very successful, but I think it's pretty unique. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to describe it and then you can correct me. <laughs> I would describe it as teaching and reinforcing basic principles of Nordic ski training. And then giving counsel to athletes while allowing opportunity for them to make decisions and even mistakes, which I think is a critical part of making progress, mm -hmm. which they would then learn from and make progress. I should also mention that you always contribute to positive energy of any situation, and you're always forward thinking and innovative. How would you describe your coaching style? Well, I mean, for starts, I, that, that, sounds, that's all, that sounds great. I, that's, um, I, I think you hit on a lot of points. Uh, it's interesting to think about this internally and, and kind of hear your description. I, I, um, the, the part about being innovative, I, I certainly, I certainly, um, try to look at the scheme, you know, from the idea of, you know, what's out there and what we can get. But I, I, you know, when, when I, when I work with athletes, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find kind of what, what works for them. And, and maybe that goes back to, you know, like how our structure works. Um, I, I think at least, uh, you know, on, on my style of coaching, what I'm trying to do is just help each person find how they can, they can reach their goals and, and giving them that latitude and, and creativity. Um, this morning we had a, an interesting workout and, um, was due to weather. We, we had to move one of our interval routes. It was, it was kind of windy on our traditional course. We moved across town and it was, it was a new interval set. And, and I kind of, I like what you had to say about, you know, the, allowing people to kind of try things and, and almost like it's a, like an opportunity to, it's okay to fail in my group. It's okay to try something. And, you know, say for example, today we did a workout where um, we did two level three intervals and then we took a break and we did two to three level four intervals. And then we came and did um, some more sprint style uh, work, um, maybe what we call level five. And, and it, was, it was good because it's the first time we skied over this terrain and if you take the group, um, we had roughly about 20 people out there this morning. Um, some people started it kind of conservatively and built through the workout. And some people started hot and kind of had to, you know, catch themselves in the middle and then, you know, figured out in the end. Um, but I, you know, the, what I liked about this morning is we tried something new. Now, when we do this workout again in two weeks, 
everyone's going to take their experience from today and they're going to be better at doing the workout, you know, two weeks from now. And so everyone learns something about, you know, their abilities and pacing. Like maybe they push the uphill too hard. So they flooded in the flat. So next time they come out, they're going to either they're going to go back and work and get better in the uphills or they're going to like feather that hill so they can have more energy into the finish. And um, so I, I think that's a really, really important thing um, with development is that there's an education part to that. And then that's kind of my role is I, I try to, you know, all the athletes that come into my program, whether they're juniors coming in or whether they are um, post-collegiate athletes um, or they're coming as a junior from another club, everyone's already trained so much in their life. So if I can help them, you know, kind of, you know, learn about what they, they know or identify with what they know and, and kind of take all their experiences and then make that go forward. Um, I feel like, like that, that's the best way to kind of help the athletes kind of reach their goals um, as opposed to like pulling them in and saying, okay, I have the perfect training plan. This is how it is. And, and if you do this, you're, you're going to hit all your goals. I, I try to, I try to help the athletes kind of, learn and find their windows through sport. So um, I don't know if that describes my coaching style, but those are a lot of the things I like in coaching. Yeah. It, it seems to me that this, your style creates a learning atmosphere for the athletes and, and you're in, the, in it for the long game. Mm -hmm. The short game would be like, Hey, no, that's, that's wrong. It's, that's not, the way of doing this workout or the, not the, the training plan that you're going to benefit most from do it this way. That'd be the short game to me. Anyway, the long game is, well, you know, generally speaking here, are these principles that we've been adhering to, and that seems to go against it, but let's see if it works for you. If that's what you really want to do. And then they try it. And then they have this trial and error phase. And then they learn about what works for them in contrast or in agreement with the principles that you've been adhering to and teaching. And, and so not only does it foster learning and experience, because if you say, hey, this is what you got to do today, the learning curve, the, 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 the learning opportunity kind of goes away because the person right. almost wants to fail to shove it in your face and prove it that you were wrong. You know what right. I mean? And, and right. then another part of that is ownership. All of your athletes are hyper, like not badly motivated, but super motivated. Um, and I think in part because they have ownership, they have an equal stake mm -hmm. in the, in the, it's a partnership, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I think that's another byproduct of your coaching style is you have extremely motivated athletes that have ownership and they're, they're on board as much as you are. Whereas in some other cases, sometimes a coach almost seems like they're on board more than the athletes. If they're a little bit too much of a director and, you know, I hate, hesitate to use the word dictator, but what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. The, um, you know, I, one of the things I always talk to the athletes about and, and I try to, to reinforce is that they're the experts and that, you know, it's their, it's their body, it's their experiences. And I think that to have the confidence to um, listen to those intuitions. And so a lot of times with my coaching, you know, I'll say, you know, like today, here's our, here's our, here's kind of the general plan and what we're doing today. And, and, um, and kind of look for, you know, the athletes kind of what they, how they see it and what they're looking at and, and always in every workout, there's the opportunity to tweak or, or, or change it, you know, instead of a five minute, maybe it's four minute or maybe this hill or that hill, but then also to talk about the whys, you know, and, and I think over a career, you know, as a, at a young level, yeah, you need more, you need more structure, you need more guidance, you know, the coach 
probably has to come out and say, okay, this is what we're doing today. And, and then since the athletes haven't done a lot of training yet at that point, then they, then they go through the training and then they learn over time how to train. Well, when the athletes start to be at this, you know, level of, um, you know, it happens at different ages and depending on people's background, but when you get to a certain point in experience, then, then a lot of times I feel like the athlete knows more about how their body's going to work than, than a plan on a piece of paper. And so I, I try to listen a lot to the intuitions of the athlete. And, um, you know, for example, we had, you know, an athlete out this morning and um, they felt like for the workout, you know, they, they needed something a little bit different than what was on our general plan. And, and so, you know, we talked about it and why and what, and okay, all right, that makes sense. And um, yeah, that's right. Let's try it. Let's do it tomorrow. And then, you know, if and it's not always that direction, of course, you know, sometimes it's like, well, you know, that's a good idea, but maybe, maybe from this perspective, we should try this. And so it's a, it's a partnership between the athletes and the coach, you know, I can be there for a resource or, you know, Hey, I've seen people do this in the past where they, you know, for example, um, you know, this time of year, maybe they're pressing too hard, too long, and, and then they don't have the energy for the winter or, um, and so that's maybe something you should consider in your training. And, and maybe what if we steer it this way a little bit, and then it's a, it's a dialogue back and forth. And um, so very much, I, and I, I think it's important to, as an athlete to have that ownership because the further you go in sport, I think to, to really, you know, bring high level out the, the athlete has to be engaged. And, you know, so maybe in their background, they have a, a month or a week or a year that they overtrained at a younger age. Well, well, that's great because in the future, then they know how to manage their training. You know, they know where that red line is. And so maybe in the end they can go further than if, if they were on this plan that I wrote, this perfect plan that I wrote, um, maybe they would never make that, that next step. So uh, this training philosophy seems, like I said, it, I see a whole lot of um, coaching philosophy. It seems very effective. I could see a lot of benefits for it, from it, but I wonder, Let's say as a parent, my philosophy has always been to kind of teach correct principles mm -hmm. and reinforce those and give opportunity for children to learn those principles. And then when they mm -hmm. hit a certain age, the, the reins get looser and looser and looser. And you can't right. do that too early necessarily. You know, you can't give the loose reins at eight, you know, right. with, with serious situations. But you darn well better have pretty loose reins at 16 or even 14 because they're not going to learn anything on their own then, you know? And, and it seems like this is very comparable to that. So my question is, you wouldn't be able to coach the way you're coaching elite athletes now, if you were coaching junior athletes like you used to, is that, is that a fair statement? You'd have to be more hands-on a little bit more directive in your coaching. Right. Yeah. I, I, um, well, one of, one of the, I think one of the, one of the things I've, I've benefited greatly from is that um, I, I coached, uh, you know, I was an athlete. And so I had that experience of working with different in different systems and different kind of coaches. And then, you know, I, I went out on and I tried, you know, my own style of coaching. And then I had uh, three kids, and I became a parent. And, and so through each experience, I, I, I learned more about how to like, you know, kind of manage or, or work with different groups. And and certainly I think that's the case, like when, you know, and, and, and it, can, it can be age-based, but it can also be experience-based. Um, you know, someone that's new to the sport, even at an older age, they might, they might need more structure. Um, and so, you know, the way we do it, 
in the program, uh, the program that I coach is we have, we have a regular schedule. And, and so when new athletes come in, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're integrated into this regular schedule. And so they may, may, you know, say if someone comes in that doesn't have a long training background, um, they, they settle into the schedule and, and at first they, they learn the rhythm of it. Right. And the schedule's set up with very, very particular ways in training. Well, after a while they get to read, you know, like say for example, every Tuesday is intervals. Um, and just for an example, every Tuesday and Fridays, well, if they manage their training, then, then they have a certain response to those Tuesdays and Fridays. Well, after enough time in, in, a, in a regular system, you become an expert in it. So then, then you start knowing how to, okay, I was, I was tired on Friday. Oh, I overdid Thursday. Um, and so through experience, you, you learn how to refine that. And, and, um, and to answer your question, uh, absolutely, you know, with, with less experience and training, there needs to be, um, there needs to be more, you know, like more specific, uh, training guidance. And then as people get older, the responsibility should be more or more experienced more and more in the hands of the athlete. I coached my daughter Pearl basically the last two years, a little bit under the last two years. And there were a number of times over these past two years where she said, I think I'm overtraining or I think I'm, I'm a little, I'm pretty tired today. I'm not sure I should do the workout. And, but she didn't have the wealth of experience, you know, the trial and error. She hadn't really pushed through hard workouts before or anything like that. And I only had one, one child who was skiing and one athlete I was coaching. And I had to kind of look at the, what she had done recently and look, you know, see if there's any kind of buildup of fatigue. And then pretty much every time, pretty much, not, I guess 80% of the time I'd be like, you know what, I think you can handle it. Go get them, you know? Mm-hmm. And then after a while she learned that she could actually handle it. I didn't know for sure, but then we learned to trust the, that she could get a little tired and bounce back. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that if I had listened to her too much, she would have been undertrained. Right. You know, right. so she needed the track record of getting, getting, getting experience that most juniors don't have. So I guess that's what I'm coming from to a part. So I'm mm-hmm. glad you said that. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, it's, that's a, I mean, that's um, like in our, in our training groups, I think that's the importance of having, I mean, that's, I think one of the, reasons it works if you have you know like say in our training group if we have 20 people and um you know here are the intervals that we're going to do and having each athlete you know have the opportunity and to talk like well are you ready for these intervals yeah i'm ready for these intervals it sounds great well i'm I'm tired today well what kind of tired and, and where's the tired coming from well and then they start talking about you know like the athlete gets the chance to talk about it and then you identify like what it is oh that's okay that's okay. What if we try it today? And, and like, for example, what if, if the interval is um, six by six minutes? Well, why don't we, you know, you're tired. What if we, what if we try, you know, and, and you, you recognize that maybe the fatigue levels at an appropriate amount to try the intervals, then, you know, maybe we try two and see where we're at. Okay. Two are going great. Oh, I, I'm not actually tired. And so you can, I, I think what, like what you're talking like, like just like in a system where, I think the guidance is important sometimes to push, you know, sometimes, yeah, you're okay to train. Cause then, then they go through that workout and they're like, yeah, it's great. I, I don't, you know, I, I just learned that, you know, when I have those feelings in my legs, maybe I went down a hill fast the other day running. So my legs were a little heavy. It wasn't deep fatigue and I had great intervals and it made sense. And so they, they get that experience where, you know, maybe they were truly tired and they crash after that. And so then they, you know, each time they learn about it. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. Sometimes it's time to kind of pull on the reins and sometimes it's 
time to push a little bit. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Eric, this is a question that I've, for me, this is kind of the most important part of this whole interview, at least to me. So I wanna, I wanna phrase this properly and, and I think it's gonna yield a very enlightening, important discussion. You have been very successful when working with athletes who have had to deal with long-term chronic injuries, such as Sadie with her lower leg issues from the fluoroquinolone history there, Rosie Brendan with her knees and back, uh, Rosie Frankowski had mono ACL surgery, Lyme disease, Eric Bjornsson had a serious tendon injury in his hand that needed to be worked around, um, and many others that I don't know about. And, and through this experience of trying to find solutions and alternate training methods and so on, managing in injuries, I think you found, you've looked for ways to reduce training load stress while looking for gains in training returns. And my experience is your findings have been very important. Here's the kind of the crux of the matter. Do you think that in order to benefit from training, the training has to have a stressful impact on the body? In other words, is no pain, no gain, more or less tried and true, or are there are ways around that. Um, would it be counterproductive to try to reduce the stress from actual workouts that might also reduce the benefits? You know, if you reduce the, if you make efforts to reduce the stress of a workout, are you also reducing the benefit of the workout? This is a very interesting question. I know you've, we've counseled on a number of things regarding mm -hmm. Pearl, and I think your experience is extremely important in this matter. So I'd love to hear your opinions. Yeah, thanks. I, I, um, that's a, that's a big question. And, and I, it's, it's certainly really, um, individual and specific to the circumstance. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I've learned, I've probably learned the most in, in the, I've learned the most about training and working with people when, when I've had athletes that, haven't been able to do the normal training. And um, I think, you know, maybe, maybe, I mean, each one of those is a really good example. I mean, each one of those were able to overcome each one of the examples you gave where it was, was able to overcome and, and maybe make a new level because of those setbacks. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know that there's a simple answer of, you know, I, I certainly don't believe in the concept of no pain, no gain. But I also believe in the idea that you have to push the body really hard when it's ready and willing to push. And so um, to be a, you know, for example, a World Cup, top World Cup skier, you have to be able to do the work to help your body change from, you know, a normal human body to something that can double pole at an, an Olympic level or it can stride uphill or skate uphill. I, I don't know that these are not necessarily natural movements. And so there's a there's a time and training component in those that you have to be able to do. And a lot of that is work, but I, I think the key in, in, in a lot of those examples what I've found is what I try to do is, is help the athletes find a way to push the body appropriately. And, you know, for example, um, you know, if some, someone has like compartment syndrome type uh, symptoms in their legs, you know, if, if they go out and skate hard or cla like classic, ski and roller skis uphill, say that fires it up. You know, if someone has Olympic aspirations and they're having, you know, symptoms of in their shins, I, I don't think the answer is you have to roller ski uphill hard 
in these kind of intervals to reach your goals. I, I think it's, it's more important to say, you know, how can we move the training and, and get the fitness gains that we're looking for and put you on a plan where over, you know, whatever the time frame can be, you know, we get your shins where they can tolerate the training. And, and so, um, you know, with, with, um, you know, I, I think Sadie's story is an unbelievable story. I, I just have the utmost respect for what she's been able to do with her training. She is, um, you know, at one point when this is several years ago now, but she was doing four or five, six sessions a day because we, we found out that, you know, like for example, she couldn't, she couldn't roller ski over 30 minutes without, you know, sending one of, you know, one of the, one of, you know, say it was, uh, one of her, her injury spots forward. And so we just said, okay, she can go under 30 minutes. And then we looked at the pool and, and said, okay, she can train this much in the pool and she can do this much running and this much biking. So we took each one that she could compete success, can do successfully without furthering the pain. And then we, we just put them together in, in, in kind of an untraditional fashion. And so she would go out in the morning and she would train, you know, several types of training and then she would take a break and come back and train again and go back and train again. Um, in the end, she was able to build her fitness, but I think more importantly, she was able to train in a way that her body uh, got fitter, but also her injuries lessened. And, and you know, she's continually working on these things uh, today even. So it, it's not like, um, you know, it, it's done. But I, I think that's really important that when people approach their training, um, I always try to tell people to train with the body and, and when it's ready to work, work hard. And, and when it's not ready to work hard, you know, let it give it, give it a little stability and time. And um, I think that's been, that's been a lot, you know, it, it's been one of the better things that we've done in our training. We counseled last winter in Houghton after Pearl had some kind of freak injury. I'm not sure how it happened, but she had a stress in the cartilage in her chest, probably from a crash in the sprint eight, a final at the Super Tour in Sun Valley. And she couldn't use her chest muscles. In other words, she couldn't pull without um, irritating it and creating more problems. Chondritis, something along those lines. Plus it seemed to appear to maybe have been a muscle injury, but it, it might've been a muscle stabilization thing where the muscle was trying to stabilize the injury. Um, and we, you and I talked for a while and you, you suggested kind of alternative methods and we put them to work and Pearl only did running intervals on the treadmill from December through mid-February, I would say. Mm -hmm. And also did about a, a half an hour run pretty much every day on the treadmill. Longer than that was hurting her knees. It was also giving her other types of stress. The treadmill in winter was great because there was no slippery ice to slip on. The workout was perfectly controlled. It was a gradual uphill. Um, there's less impact. And then the skiing she was doing, it's a difficult thing to do, but you have to do less than you're capable of in order to expand mm -hmm. your abilities. If you do exactly what you're capable of, then you never, you'll always be on the ragged edge. So we were purposefully shutting it down before we thought she was going to incur pain, which was a difficult thing to, to guess at. But, and, and all of her skiing was easy up through something like mid February. And, I, it looked to me like she was getting really fit, really fit. And her running, running intervals in the treadmill were really good, but I didn't have any solid benchmarks. You know, she, her, her body composition was good. 
and she, her training volume wasn't a ton, but it was high quality and very focused. And to my surprise, um, she ended up as the top older junior age girl in the Intermountain West and ended up winning the U20 at World at, uh, Junior Nationals in the classic race, which is only a 5K. The, tw the 10K was canceled because of COVID. But if she wins the 5K, she's going to destroy everyone in the 10K. That's, that's how it is. She's a much better yeah. 10K skier than a 5K skier. And so that, that experience, after listening to what you would basically balance with Rosie, the other Rosie, with Sadie, and with some of the other athletes, um, I'm a huge believer in breaking up big workouts and making them small workouts in the name of reducing stress and problem solving around injuries while knowing that you can be confident in the fitness that the athlete is developing as long as the, the, you know, the workouts are proper and the mindset is right. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I was amazed at the, at her fitness that she was able to build. And then in no time flat, she started doing ski intervals and was pr maybe faster than she would have been. I'm not sure. Okay. But that was a direct result of our conversations and listening to your experiences. So I thank you for that. But I think it's important for other coaches and athletes to hear about that there are more than one ways to get there. And sometimes the way that is the plan B or C or D might actually work out better than your plan A for whatever reason. Not that that's the, the way to you know, design a training plan, but mm -hmm. boy, there are, there are some alternate training methods that are really effective. You might remember back in the day, Christian Mybeck injured his back or something. I forget what it was. And he pool ran for two weeks straight right before World Championships and ended up winning the darn thing. And everyone was like, what? No one was out there, you know, able-bodied athletes running out there and, and not injured, jumping in the pool. But they right. really didn't hurt him because he won, you know. So right. there's a lot of examples of this that are, that are thought-provoking, if nothing else, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. possibly ought to give us an idea of humility because we probably don't know as much as we think we do. And there are more than one ways to skin a, I won't say cat, that's cruel, but to get there, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't speak enough, uh, you know, about, I mean, as a young coach, I thought I knew a lot. And, and the more, the more I, I mean, that's why I think the intuitions of the athlete are so important, because the more I listened, the more I thought about it, um, you know, there's ways to train that, that you know, I, I think, you know, like I said, I think the athletes are the experts if you listen. Now, granted, their motivation gets in the way sometimes. And so you have to help kind of navigate and, and figure out where that is. But it's one thing I run into a lot is that, um, you know, I, maybe someone has, a, has an injury that they, you know, that's starting to become chronic. And you start looking at the training and, you know, say, for example, um, with running, you see, you know, like two days a week or three days a week, a two hour run mixed in there, which is a great session um, to go for a long run. Um, but then if they're having a, a running related injury and, and they can't shake it, so they'll do two or three runs and then they'll take a week off from running and they come back and two or three long runs, 90 minutes to two hours again, and, and it keeps cropping up. And so, I mean, that was part of something that, you know, actually working with, with Sadie that kind of caught my attention is with running, it's important to, you know, build running like we would if we were a runner, you know, a lot of the, you know, the athletes I work with, they're training from, you know, 750 up to almost 1200 hours. And, you know, for those athletes in those higher hours, they're running a lot, you know, a good percentage of that time. And so to be able to handle those kind of volumes, you really have to pay attention to, to what's going on. 
And so a lot of times, like, you know, like when we go through training, you know, managing that someone might come to train and say, Oh, I have a, you know, a calf that's starting to fire up. One of the fortunate things is um, started working with a PT a few years ago, Susanna Rogers. Um, and we work with a, a clinic um, advanced physical therapy. And between those two, we're, we're able to educate the athletes with how to manage their their injuries and kind of learn about their bodies. And so, you know, they come to training, oh, I have a calf thing. Okay, have you, have you talked with um, APT or have you talked with Susanna? Yes, yes, we have. Okay, what'd you learn? Okay, I learned this. Okay, now let's look at your training log. And, and sometimes you'll see that, like, you know, that cycle of um, these big runs and then no runs and then big runs. And, and so one of the things in, in, in skiing that I think is really important is to change the perspective and, and train by the idea of what am I ready for? Hmm. And, and that might be, you know, that might be, you know, you might be ready for 30 minutes a day, every day. And so I'm, I'm you know, and that, that's kind of your threshold. And so I, in, in those areas, I, I always try to work on frequency as opposed to duration. And so trying to build up frequency with training, because most people know that feeling that, you know, at all ages, if you have a lifestyle where you get out and you are active every morning and you get the right amount of training, not, not something that's super crazy and, and not something that's super low, you start feeling pretty good. As you start feeling pretty good and you get the training rhythm, well, then you can start pushing a little more. Well, then once you start pushing a little more, then you, you kind of find where that limit is. You, you feel like you're coming off the backside, right? And so then now you've identified how much is right for training, but it's that training rhythm that we always come back to. And so, um, you know, if someone had some time off um, and then that's kind of what I learned um, when I mentioned being sick when I was younger and changing my skiing around is when I came back, I didn't have the energy. You know, I used to think it was a waste of time to train under two hours. That's not even a session if it's under two hours. And that was totally the wrong perspective. You can get a lot out of a 20 minute session or a 30 minute session. If you only train 20 minutes, you, you know, you probably won't be a top end world cup skier if it's 20, 30 minutes a day, but then can we, can we do enough? You know, can we move things around and, and kind of um, make that make sense? And so um, what I, what I learned through that period was there's, there's a sequencing. If you can get into a, the body, into a rhythm and sequence, it's really easy to identify where you're at with training, you know, especially if, um, you know, like, I mean, for the example I gave, like we use Tuesday and Fridays through some of our training blocks, Tuesday and Friday for intensity days. Well, once you start the intensity, you know exactly where you are. So then you can kind of look backwards and you can kind of say, okay, well, I overdid it. And, and it's the same thing with injuries. If you end up, if you have a, you know, like a chronic, you know, calf muscle that flares up, okay, it's flared up. If you look backwards a little bit and start looking for the patterns, okay, well, one week I ran for two hours, then you know, another week, two hours, another week, two hours, another week, two hours. And then the next week I ran for five hours. And then I had started having trouble after that. It's really easy to pick up those things. So what do we do? We go back to the point where we didn't have any trouble and we start rebuilding again. And then that's, that's, I, I think, you know, like the stories around the athletes you mentioned, um, at least that's what I felt my role was, is to help them learn, you know, like where, where, what levels, you know, because with, like it mentioned earlier, the motivation gets in the way you know if you you say um you know someone starts talking about olympic goals that person can probably push through a lot of pain and and so with our training culture that's what we're taught is that you know no pain no gain to a certain degree right if, if i'm not out there training a lot how am i going to get my goals well I, I think you do have to work hard but there's a way to work hard so instead of 
you know, going and beating your head in the wall and furthering your injury, you know, if you can find a way to work around it. And it's, it's fun that you mentioned the pool. I think the pool has endless dividends for someone that's trying to manage where, they're, where they are. Um, the other thing that we, we do a lot of is, is we try to set up like a, a, re a regular body care routine. And so um, if someone's kind of lingering, going in and out of, you know, chronic, chronic um, injuries or um, they're having to modify their training, I feel like a lot of times, you know, it could be training load, you know, that we can adjust, but also can be, you know, look at like what they're doing in a day. Do they, you know, sit in a chair for six or eight hours? Um, you know, are they doing multi-directional movement, you know, and, and how often are they doing it once a week or twice a week? Um, I've had a project a few years ago where we had our whole team do, um, I think it was eight weeks, uh, six days a week of a 20 minute morning routine just to see if it, it would work. And, and it was great because, you know, it's, it, again, it has to do with frequency. If they, if they did the morning routine enough, they started to kind of feel improvements. Um, so I'm also, also a big believer um, in kind of the different managements. Cool. Yeah. I, this all makes sense to me and I agree. And, and it adds up with my experience as well. And in part, it's a little bit in contrast to prevailing wisdom. I just, I, I think it's important to be humble as a coach, just as it is to be humble as a person, as an athlete, and to recognize sometimes that rather than doing, um, let's say, let's say Pearl, her biomechanically, we've been working on it. She's running in front of a mirror and, mm -hmm. and her, her biomechanics are better. So that's led her to be able to run more. Mm -hmm. But until she's able to achieve that, it long term, it seems to me, it's definitely better for her to do more frequent, shorter runs than mm -hmm. trying to do what you're, you know, she's got, a, let's say, three weeks of good running, and then, boom, she's three weeks with no running. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then she's got three weeks of good running, and then, you know, and going back and forth, there's a, there's a consistency that we're able to achieve. Mm -hmm. And the more frequent short runs she does, the longer she can run as well, mm -hmm. because she gets mm -hmm. used to it and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, of course, we're working on her ability to run with better biomechanics, and and she's made progress there. But that the, that kind of philosophy isn't something that we seem to pay much attention to as a coaching community. Mm -hmm. And I think it's extremely important to pay attention to. So, and if you help bring that more to my, everyone's got problems with with parts of their body here and there. And mm -hmm. there are a lot mm -hmm. of workarounds and oftentimes those workarounds can be better than what you were doing originally, or at least very little compromise. That's a very important point. Thank you Thanks. for that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Eric, as I mentioned before, you're a family man and I know you work a lot, a lot of hours mm -hmm. and you're all in, you know, heart and soul. You also have a lot of longevity as a coach. You're happy. I know you work hard and I know you feel the load sometimes, but I know you love what you do and it's rewarding. Talk please about balancing your work and your family life and, and how you've been able to achieve a happy longevity as a coach. I mean, I think the real answer is I, I was fortunate to marry the right lady <laughs> um, that my wife, I mean, she's been, um, I have a supportive, my, my wife Gretchen was a ski racer when she was young and, um, and we kind of had, we kind of had similar experiences that we have both had big goals and, 
um, for one reason or the other, you know, the, the support, you know, probably wasn't in line with the goals. And, and so that's probably the number one reason is that I have balance in this and that I have, have an, an important, a very supportive environment. Um, and I mean, that goes, that goes in hand with, you know, someone chasing after the Olympics too. If, you know, you got to say, you know, you have your supportive environment and that, that kind of, that's what helps you forward. Um, so that's where most of my balance has been kept. I, you're right. I work, I work, I work, I work a lot. Um, when I started, uh, when I started in this position, um, I manage uh, Eagle Glacier training facility. Um, we have a glacier facility that's um, just north of Girdwood, which is about 45 minutes south of, of Anchorage. And uh, so in the summertime, you know, our staffs are usually up there around 50 days a summer um, running camps. And um, so between that and, you know, I, I, uh, I am I'm very dedicated to the athletes I work with. Um, but I also, I also enjoy it a lot. And so um, along that, uh, my family has been a big part of what I do. Like my, my wife and my kids uh, come up to the glacier when it makes sense and um, they like to ski. And uh, so that, that's, made it, that's made it a lot easier. Whether I've kept balance or not, there's probably times I have and times I haven't. Um, you know, periods where there's heavy travel and uh, you know, I've been gone for long periods of time. I would say that's out of balance. Um, but I, you know, I, I, um, I always try to, you know, like in, in my life priorities, you know, my, my family's my family and my work as a coach. And I'm fortunate that my work is a passion too. So, you know, like even if you know, I've never clocked in or clocked out, um, when I coach, I just get up in the morning and I, I, I see what's ahead of me and I, I try to try to do the best I can um, after I, after I finished ski racing, I was so motivated to help people, uh, reach their goals. And, you know, I, I had a, one of my good friends, uh, had a gold medal in, in Salt Lake. And it was, it was interesting because I could see how simple it was. And the simplicity was, you know, making the hard work and then having a normal life around you with your, with your family. And so that's, I've kind of taken that same approach to my coaching is that, you know, I, I certainly have other hobbies that I like to do, but um, probably the, the hours in my days are, are very, are split between my family and, um, and coaching. Um, yeah. And I, I think the, the, um, it's, it's been interesting too. You mentioned the longevity and, you know, I, I think it, so far, um, you know, each, each phase of my coaching has been a little bit different and, you know, there might've been like a, an initial phase where, you know, I was, uh, spent a lot of time you know, researching and learning from other coaches and other sports and, you know, trying to collect all the information I could at the time. Um, those, those were the sleepless years because I was trying to do my job and, you know, uh, another several things on top. Um, but then, you know, I've been fortunate too that, you know, with, with coaching, I've had um, some really, really, really strong coaches that have worked with me um, that have helped, you know, like as we got this going, they've helped carry it. And so, um, there, there are stories probably of me out there, you know, working long nights and coaching during the day, but, you know, right by my side, you know, I had, I had those really good partners, um, that, you know, were out there doing the same thing. Uh, they were out there grooming and, and keeping equipment up and, um, helping, you know, facilitate the, facilitate the training. And, and without those people, I think this would have, I, I wouldn't have kept balance at all, but, you know, fortunately I've had a, a good team around me, my wife, uh, you know, certainly being, 
being the, the strongest supporter and then um, you know a number of number of coaches and I'd love to list them but I'll, I'll save that one because I, I, I think they've yeah okay thank you that that's a that was an interesting comment and I appreciate that I, I think many other coaches will listen to that and kind of take stock of their own situations mm -hmm. so Eric here's a interesting question that'll be fun to answer you have seen Americans come from no chance in international racing to multiple athletes making the red group to having a good chance to medal but not believing it to then finally believing it and having multiple athletes make the podium regularly recently we've had for example Andy, Simi, Keegan, Caitlin Gregg, Liz, Ida, Sophie, Julia, and Sadie. That's not even counting relays and of course Rosie Brennan has been doing extremely well uh, too. We are now in a very good place as a country, especially with our junior world teams being, I would say probably the most dominant in the world in the last two years, if not one of the most dominant. How important do you think this newfound culture of success is to our future success? Well, that's, that's a, that's a great question. I, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because when I, when I found myself responsible, um, you know, for this goal of, of helping, you know, Keegan um, ski at the top of the world. Um, at the time, you know, I guess what I've learned is, is that, you know, her success is certainly what she's done to make it, but also has a lot to do with people behind, before her, kind of building, building that, that, you know, structure, whether it was the, you know, the person, you know, who started the races, out at Kincaid during the winter to coaches that um, held, held the trainings to, you know, family and friends, um, former competitors, um, you know, um, you know, we had several that kind of helped pave the way. And, and so I, I think we're, you know, we're at that point right now where um, the skiers growing up, they, they know it's possible. And um, I mean, I see, I see more in the future for sure. So if you look at, let's say, Manchester United, mm -hmm. a very famous soccer team, European football team, um, for years, they might have not, they, they had some really good years and some bad years, but for the most part, they show up, they're planning on beating whoever they're playing. And they're famous for, for years, they were famous for scoring in the last 10 minutes. They called it mm -hmm. Fergie time. Number one, the referees weren't, didn't trust themselves to stop the clock a little bit early, you know, so they usually went a minute or two late, otherwise someone would probably smash the windshield in the car. But, but on top of that, the players were so confident they were going to win, as the time wound down in the, in the game, they would get better and better and better and apply more and more pressure and inevitably score a goal to win the game. And that self-belief affected their performance. And I think mm -hmm. we're getting there. With, if you look mm -hmm. at our new generation with, with our World Junior athletes and I think they're building on the success of Keegan and Keegan's building on mm -hmm. and, and Andy Newell and Simi Hamilton and Torin Coos and um, other athletes in the past and, and the current World Cup stars that we have. I think the success is building on them. Where we used to look at Norway and say, look at these young athletes. They're looking at World Junior Stars successful. And those World Junior Stars from Norway, that same town and club, are looking at World and Olympic champions. And they all know that it's possible because they're neighbors and they've mm -hmm. seen each other. They, you know, they take they, their lockers next to the other person in the, in their club, you know, and we're starting to scratch at that now where 
our juniors have seen success in the senior level by mm -hmm. our seniors. And now our kids are looking at our juniors and winning world junior relay teams, uh, races and, and world junior titles and getting top threes. And they're saying, you know, I can do that. Heck, I, I grew up next to Gus. I mean, and to Haley, I mean, I grew up next to these people. I can do it if they can do it, you know? And mm -hmm. so there's a certain amount of success that, that success breeds. And there's a mentality change, a confidence, a self-belief, uh, a, a courage that comes with it, an audacity even that comes with it to make a move that you wouldn't have dreamed of making a move before because we suck, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. we're, we're in an interesting position right now as a country. Would you agree? I, I agree. We're in a good position right now. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I absolutely agree with the notion that, you know, the athletes growing up today, they, they've seen, you know, the Keegan Randall succeed and, and they come to training with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same in, in watching the preparation, right? If, if you are around a group where if you train 700 hours, it might go really bad because it's too much. Right. But if everyone around you is training more than that and they're succeeding, what well, opens the door? And that's the biggest change I've seen in my coaching is that, you know, people are willing to put themselves out there and train more, not, not because people before weren't willing to, but because, you know, Keegan went down that path of training more. So then now people saw that and then they started training more. And then now the, the, the skiers coming up, I mean, the training logs are, just much different in, in, in kind of time. And I, I see that they're, they're willing to commit because, you know, they, they watch, yeah, like you, like you said, they watch their neighbor, they watch um, someone that, that's human and, and they just cleared X hours. Oh, I can do that. And they step forward. So no, I, I agree with what you're saying. And, and to, to, I think to maybe clarify or summarize what you're saying is it's not just a mentality on race day but it's a mentality all year round where you're building a culture of success, which includes training damn hard and investing mm -hmm. and committing. And that also yields success. Of course it's not. And you've seen the example of prior athletes who have had the courage to do that and the know-how to do that. So we've got more or less a template of, of investing that we know mm -hmm. is bringing success, not just the confidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's fair. Here's a here's a, a important and loaded question, but what is something you know now that you really wish you had known when you were 18? You know, at 18, I wish I would have known how young I was and how much opportunity was out in front of me. I I, I think that I think what I see is that um, at 18. I felt like I had, I had done, I, you know, I'd gone on this path and, and that, you know, like, like this much was still a possibility, but at 18, I think if you want to change where you're going, the, the world is your opportunity. And, and I think that's 18, 18 is just the start of a ski career. And, you know, hopefully at that time at 18, you've had a lot of training and you're in the right place. But at the same time, if, if, if you aren't, you can change that. And, and I think that's, um, I think that is, is, that's where success comes from at 18 is realizing, you know, maybe that's the importance of being in a strong group where the, the, the environment's right. And, and the guidance, right. Is that, you know, when I was 18, I, I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to ski, but if I, if I don't have a medal 
hit the World Cup by age 21, I should retire because it's not going to happen. Well, at that time, I, you know, I didn't have the training in line with that. I didn't have the experience in line with that. That was a totally ridiculous goal and statement. But I, I remember turning 21 and having that thought, well, not even close. But, you know, like my preparation wasn't in line with that goal, right? And so if I, if I could go back, I would give myself more time. That or uh, when I was younger, I would have found a better group to train with. And so I would have been on that track a little bit earlier. I was having a conversation the other day with a Russian friend who's an uh, elite ex, he's still an elite skier, he's just older. Um, and he was talking about overcoming adversity and mm -hmm. injury. And he said, there's a Russian, Russian saying that has served him well over the years, and it is, hurry slowly. Mm -hmm. and I think that's got something to do with what you're just talking about, huh? Yep, I, yep, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think at least in our, at least when, when I grew up, it felt like you had to be at a certain place at a certain time. And if you weren't, then that door was closed. And certainly, you know, there are things like that that happen. But I, I think just the patience to see it through and um, I, I like your I like your Russian notion. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you. Let me switch gears. As you probably know, I'm the glove. I'm the Toko glove designer. I am responsible for the Toko gloves from start to finish, from the designs to the production quality to any kind of adjustments. Everything is me, and I, I really enjoy getting feedback from athletes and coaches and and customers. Um, mm -hmm. So here's a question. Um, I'm at, I'm interviewing you as a coach, of course. Coaches spend a lot of time outside on training and race days, more than athletes even generally, and oftentimes sweaty or standing around in the cold. What is your favorite Toko glove model and why? Oh, my, well, I mean, I, so as a coach, it's complicated. As an athlete, it's really easy. You, you know, you want a thin glove that fits well and you can train and you put your glove on and you do your business. As a coach, it's a whole different business. And actually, as a coach, but maybe a parent as well, you know, you, you get out there and you're getting everybody ready and you get your like few minutes to go hammer and then you come back and you're, you're doing the same thing. Um, my, my number one favorite glove is the Thermo Plus. And, and the reason I like it is um, it has enough insulation for the cold days, but also it's light enough that, you know, when the temperatures are up around freezing, that it's also really comfortable. And it, I don't feel like, you know, there's good dexterity and um, it's a good temperature set. Would you say is a good trade-off between warmth and breathability? Like it is. Like overheat, but at the same time, it's warm, quite warm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. In, in, um, in Alaska, we get all sorts of different temperatures. You know, we're up on the glacier in the summertime, and, you know, it's, you know, 40 degrees often. Um, in the wintertime, we can hover down around zero Fahrenheit. On those zero Fahrenheit days, you have to have a warm, breathable glove. And that's, that's where I usually notice it if you're out working hard and skiing. Um, a lot of gloves that don't breathe very well, they'll get like a, a nice shell inside them. Um, but the Thermo Plus, you, you don't get that. And your hands stay dry and um, stay warm. Also, at the same time, when it's 40 degrees out on the glacier, um, you know, you have to insulate your hands because usually at 40 degrees, it's usually pretty wet too. And uh, so it's a, it's a really nice balance. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. I have, I think, two more questions for you. The first is, what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Hmm. That's a, that's a good one. I, I, I think, you know, I like skiing. That's pretty simple. Right. Um, I, you know, the stint between being in a car accident and being a full-time coach, I am, um, a commercial instrument pilot. 
-hmm. and a certified aircraft and power plant mechanic. Wow. So there's probably, there's probably not too many coaches out there with that as a, as their, um, as their kind of their, their skill or trade. Uh, for me personally, where it comes in is, is on Eagle Glacier. So we run, I grew them in the piston bully. And so, uh, that mechanic and certificate came, it comes in really handy. And if you've been on the glacier, that's probably not a surprise, but, uh, just as a ski coach in, in, uh, the Nordic field, um, yeah, that's maybe a little unusual. Those are two abilities that are high in demand as well. So that's, I'm glad that we're, we, as a ski community have been able to retain your services and abilities as a coach because I'm, you, I'm sure you've had some really good temptation to strong temptation to go elsewhere and to make a good living and do something completely different that might not be as meaningful as what you're doing, but it would certainly right. support a family. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I got into the aviation, Alaska, Alaska is just a huge adventure. And, and so I got into the aviation, um, just to, you know, explore and, and see Alaska. And uh, it was a really interesting part. I, I was really interested in, in small airplanes, um, small um, Bush Alaska type flying. And there's just, you know, the, the more I flew, the more I, I missed skiing. And, and so it was, it was actually a really nice thing to do. Both are very nice lines of work. Um, but, you know, I, I coach, you know, my heart's in skiing. So I'm glad, glad to be able to focus on that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So last question, I think, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? I think my, I think, I think work, you know, work, work with your body. That, you know, from a, as a coaching mantra or philosophy, if you just work with it, that's, that's probably my, my best hand. Okay, um, there's a question I meant to ask you that I forgot to ask, and it's something you talk about a lot, so I don't wanna uh, leave it out, and that is you talk a lot about the mechanics of the feet and the lower legs. Mm -hmm. And I think that your perspective on that is very important. When you understand how the feet are supposed to work, you can avoid injury and you can be more efficient and, uh, and effective as an athlete. Can you talk to that please before we, before we close? I think it's important enough to to shoehorn it in here. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, I should probably credit my dad for this growing up. Uh, he, he had an interest in, you know, foot mechanics and, and keeping feet healthy. And so growing up, I, I got to listen to, to a lot of conversation around it. And, um, as I became a coach, um, what I, what I saw was, you know, you know, a lot of, a lot of injuries, you know, whether it's elbows or backs or hips. And, and so it kind of just led, led me back. And, and, you know, so as part of my coaching development, I spent a lot of time trying to learn about the human body and, and, and mechanics and, um, and, you know, I guess in a, a really short form, uh, I think our, the human body was, was made to, you know, move and run and, and walk and you know, do things with our limbs, not necessarily double pole and, and skate ski. And so I, I think it a lot, like often when, when I watch athletes that I'm working with, um, you can kind of look into their background and you interview people and say, okay, you know, what did you do growing up? 
and you can kind of, you know, you watch, you know, where the power and the energy is coming from. Well, often what I see if, if the, the foot mechanics are um, not very natural, then, then you see a lot of overuse, especially when people get to the upper stages in their career. And, and so at a young age, it's just really, really important. And I think that, you know, like we have, we have a, in our club here, we have um, a, 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 D, a, a junior high age program called the Devos. And we have a, you know, a junior team, which is high school. And then we have our elite program, elite university program. And the, the whole basis of our Devo program is to get young athletes out and, and just to get to enjoy the outdoors and, and being involved in sport. But from another level, more technical level, we're trying to spend a lot of time, you know, like running in the woods, um, playing soccer, you know, we play speedball more often than soccer and skiing and roller skiing and running. But I think at that age, you know, like you can, you can, if you overdo say like the roller skiing and the double pulling, and then you don't have much footwork, you, you get, you get really good results at a young age, but then you don't see the development. So the further you go in skiing, then you see more pressure on the back and, and more pressure in the elbows. And, um, so usually like when I have an athlete come into my program, um, that's usually the first thing I start asking about is their background and what they've done. And I watch them move and I kind of theorize on where the, the energy is coming from. And, um, if I, if I see that, um, you know, maybe that's out of balance, I don't see the foot, the feet, you know, having enough contribution, then I, I try to build that into the training. And, um, you know, my goal with our program is when athletes come up is to start that at a young age. So that when they get to the older levels, we don't have to kind of backtrack and work on that. Um, and, and that's kind of the, that's built into the design of our program. Um, but I, I think the, you know, if you, if you watch the way human bodies built, if we're going to keep it running well, you know, spending enough time on your feet, um, is, is really, really important. And, and for, you know, even for, um, performance means if, you know, you have someone go out and double pull and you isolate the, the joints and the feet and the, the knees, um, performance comes down. So we're enabled, we, you can even enable, not even just from a health benefit, but from a performance benefit, um, we can help elevate performance by good foot mechanics. Super. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, uh, that's a, body mechanics in general, I think are critical when coaching athletes to see you can even look at someone's shoe wear and and uh, mm -hmm. and draw some pretty accurate conclusions. But to watch someone's gait and improve mm -hmm. their gait uh, would result in running, walking, even even in skiing, mm -hmm. would result in in less repetitive movement injuries and a healthier mm -hmm. athlete in general. And I think when it comes to foot and lower leg mechanics, that's really probably the most important thing to focus in on. Although there are other things that are quite important. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate your comments on that. Um, because they're non-traditional. You know, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting too, because I, I mean, that's a, that's a one, that's a one stab explanation of it. And I, I for, I for sure think that, you know, like the whole body's engaged in skiing, it's really important, but that I would just say, you know, with the app, you know, through my coaching, that's one place that I think is, is really important. Um, especially, you know, like, you know, as, as we go through this, you know, models are becoming more and more specialized at a young age. And I think just keeping that footwork in there is, is so important, even, you know, um, you know, in those, those kind of junior high school years, you know, cranking out a ton of double pulling and leaving the running and the soccer and those behind, maybe in the short term you make gains, but I, th I think it's the, what you're looking at when the athlete, you know, if, if that athlete's in an Olympic track one day and they get to be up in their middle, you know, young twenties, 
and, and they're training around a thousand hours or whatever those hours may be, that that's what you're trying to plan for. And so um, if there was one thing, one thing I could really input, um, it would, it would be, it would be that kind of like well-rounded good development at a young age. And then, you know, like while people are going through that, you know, like junior, senior in high school, when they're becoming really capable of training a lot and, and young college years, um, that that's, that's kept in mind and trying to keep balance in the body and, and just, you know, that there's probably, you know, we just from a very simple, a simple approach and, and we're like what I try to keep as a very basic, simple approach is kind of looking at how the body is, is designed to move and then trying to build the technique into that as opposed to, you know, like this is how skating is, but well, how's the human body? Because if, if you have good foot mechanics, like when you run, you can see that in the skating and then, and so then you're, you're able to train at a higher level longer. If you're, if you're skating in a way that's not sustainable um, over time, you just, you, you run into more uh, injuries in the future. Okay. So your point taken about not conforming you to technique, but perhaps adjusting, but another reason the question, because this is a very actually quite important topic when it comes to injury prevention and um, moving properly. Well, so it seems to me, I've mentioned with Pearl a few times, running in front of a mirror and correcting her, her movement, her biomechanics. But there's the other aspect, which I know would also help Pearl and many other athletes out there, is, is simply doing some basic PT lower leg exercises on a regular basis, such as balancing on any one of a number of types of, of balancing things which create instability, and then throwing a ball against the wall, and then you know making it progressively harder by looking at the you know looking away or whatever. But but then the appropriate receptors in your lower legs start firing and you start developing things that you hadn't developed and also doing um, like jump rope type exercises, any kind of just not overdoing it, but simple hopping mm -hmm. exercise with proper mechanics. And next thing you know, you've got not only good mechanics to your lower leg, but they're also really sound from a, mm -hmm. from a biomechanics point of view, mm -hmm. strong and, and well-formed. And what, what would you think about, having that as part of an athlete's routine on a regular basis, you know, a couple times a week, just 10 minutes or something. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, um, you know, it's funny training to make, making statements around training. They're always dangerous, right? Because it might sound, it might sound one, you know, like, like a simple statement might be the, the only thing someone hears in, in a comment. So, um, but I, I would say, I would say that having some type of, you know, body care movement as a part of your normal training is super important. And I don't think it takes much. And I, I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of, you know, 10 to 20 minutes a day, you know, something that's pretty regular, you know, have some jumping in there, having some, you know, body, you know, um, body movement exercises. I think like the balance on it um, is if you're, you know, if you're doing, if you're, there's a, there's a, there's a balance for every stage in development. And so at a young age, you want a lot of, a lot of different kind of movement. Well, as you, as you excel, if you go through your development curve and, you know, you, you end up, you know, you're, you're fighting for gold medals near the end of, of your career, it might, it might become less like more specific over time. Um, but I, you know, at, at the risk, you know, of if it's too much, then that might be taken away from other training or it might be creating, you know, like um, movements that aren't, aren't as refined. But I, I think, in, especially in, in like the develop, earlier development phases, having is, is, 
like a, a really healthy amount of, you know, multi-direction movement is super important. And I, I think even, you know, like in our training plans, we have a, we have a, um, like a, an APU daily movement plan and, and the athletes, you know, it's recommended the athletes do it five to six mornings a week or five to six days a week, depending on how they're wired. Some people are morning people, so they do it before training and some people do it in the afternoon. Um, it's a real simple plan. It takes about 15 minutes. And, and the reason I like 15 minutes is everyone has 15 minutes in the day. So it's, it's not a burden, you know, and, um, and it's regular. And I guess I hit on that a little bit earlier. I like, I like a lot of routine. And, and so um, even, even, you know, all the way through someone's career, you know, especially like, you know, when people are starting to be, um, you know, end of high school, um, uh, you know, through college and into their elite careers, having something like that, I, I think is really valuable. Before that, you know, you just need more sports involved and, in, you know, soccer and, and all, all these different, like, like a bigger input. Um, but I, I think, yes, having something like you mentioned sounds, sounds like a good plan. I, I, uh, in, in any time, you know, like, I, I think that's something that if someone, you know, is, is having some kind of chronic patterning in their, in their training with injuries, then, you know, like looking at load, but then also looking at that part about how much body care and some athletes, they don't need very much body care. But I, I think it's like having a light plan is good for insurance where, where some athletes, they have, they have more of a history of, of injury. And so then you have to dedicate a little more time than 15 minutes a day. Um, Super. Well, yeah. I, I think that, that's, uh, I'm glad I added that question because I think it's an extremely important topic. And I think probably a lot of coaches are going to be interested in listening to this. So, um, mm -hmm. and athletes, heck, they, they should also consider body care carefully. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, Eric, I, I really appreciate um, seeing you all over the place at all different, all different events over the years and the friendship that we've developed. And I appreciate you being here with me today and offering your opinions to me. It's been a very interesting discussion, but also to the American skiing public. I'm, um, it's getting late and so dark in my office here. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate the extra, extra time you've put in and, um, and I look forward to seeing you around. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk. And um, yeah, if you, if you have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out. Um, you can always, you know, for those watching, you can always find my contact on the APU website. So if you have any questions about what I said today, feel free to kind of reach out. I'd be happy to do my best to answer. Super. Well, thanks again. All right. Thank you.